Hello, welcome to I Love Rock and Roll. I'm Ken Krantz, and uh, Chip couldn't be here today. My co-host is a fellow stand-up comedian, very funny. Uh, he's the host of the podcast, That Jameson Show. You might remember him from that metal show, which ran for, I think, 14 seasons. Uh, welcome, Don Jameson. Thank you, and uh, I appreciate you. We were talking about the, the Cheap Trick shirt before we came on the air and it's just, it never ends, man. They're still, still great. And they're still out playing. And, uh, yeah, I, I love them. You said you've been binging on lately. I, I can't get enough. No, I, I can, the, the, and I know it's like, it's cheesy to, to love at Budokan, but I have been playing that record has been in nonstop rotation for me, uh, for like the last year and a half. Um, but speaking of great live albums, uh, our guest today is uh, the great Matt Sorum from The Cult, Guns N' Roses, Velvet Revolver, Kings of Chaos. Um, you've got a fantastic new single out called <laughs> Judgment Day. I love the video. It was very like Rob Zombie. And... Um, but we're we're talking about great live albums. Uh, Guns N' Roses just put out the deluxe edition of the Use Your Illusion albums, and on them are two club gigs. They were like your rehearsal shows uh, from the Ritz uh, in New York, and then um, I think the other one was from Vegas. But I I listened to the Ritz show. Uh, probably three or four times now in the last few days while I've read your fantastic new book, Double Talk and Jive. And um, that is some monster live set, ma'am. Well, thank you. I don't remember any of it. <laughs> <laughs> All I remember about that night is we roll in backstage and I remember the clubhouse from this Third Street Hells Angels was in there drinking all of our beer. <laughs> and that was just sort of, you know, those guys, Butch and all those dudes, we used to know those guys in New York and they, they basically didn't need a lamb in it. And they were backstage when we got there. I'm like, Hey, look at these guys. And, and then slash comes over to me and he says, Hey man, you know, we're shooting a video tonight. I just thought I'd let you know. And I was like, what? <laughs> so if I would have known, I would have wore a different colored headband. You know, I don't know. It was like, <laughs> I was like, that was just kind of how we rolled. Like all of a sudden we're shooting a video for you could be mine, uh, which was shot at the Ritz for that video that we did for the Terminator too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we didn't do a lot of rehearsal with Axel up until those shows. Axel didn't like to rehearse that much back in the day. And so when we got there, the Ritz, uh, the Warfield Theater in San Francisco, and then we did the Pantages. And Axel would announce at the beginning of the show, hey, this is a rehearsal, right? And But we had so much fun. I remember I listened, you know, the band and everybody, we didn't send around the tracks that were going out. But I heard You Could Be Mine. I'm like, whoa, I missed the intro drum fill. <laughs> if you hear it, it just goes into it. Cause everything I, you know, I didn't do the big thing. Yeah. And I'm like, Whoa, where did that go? And wow. the guitars are a little out of time, but there was kind of a beauty to that with that band. There was this looseness that made for energy and excitement. 
you know, it wasn't perfectly tight on that, on that record, but that's okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, it, so. um, it, uh, well, I think that's, I think that's the beauty of great live albums though. Right. Is you hear some of the sloppiness and you hear some of the mistakes. Um, yeah. I mean, they didn't go back in and fix anything. It didn't sound like, like, you know, Slash and Duff and those guys, and they were in control of taking care of that stuff. I wasn't really in the mix, but, you know, as far as handling that stuff, but they just kind of left it. I'm like, whoa, that's really kind of, there were some moments where you're like, but that's what makes it real and feels more live. I think a lot of bands make live records and they go in the studio and fix it all and recut cut the vocals and all that kind of stuff. And Axel in those days, I mean, he was just on point every night. That was, he was the guy that went on stage with the intent that he was going to throw down the vocal properly. And if he couldn't do that, you know, we would go on late when he was ready, we would go on because it was all about his voice. And as any, I mean, anyone knows as being a singer, it's different than playing, you know, you can play with the flu, you could get up there and rock and be hungover. But when you're, when your instrument is your vocal and your pipes, it's a different animal. So I just remember that being those shows being just super, just, you know, reckless abandon in a way. And we kind of, you know, we didn't use a set list. So Axel would call them out. And yeah. So it was, it was, we were all on the, on the cuff, you know, we were like, it was just energy and the beginning of really wild times for me. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but that, Matt, that, that, dr that drum part at the beginning, you, you could be mine is, is very iconic. So you're saying on the, in the box set and Ken, you heard it. I haven't heard it yet. That, that is gone. It's, they didn't, they didn't dub it in or anything. No. And I don't remember playing it that way, but the way the song originally went was when we rehearsed it, I would just go into the do, 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 da, do, 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 da thing. Right. And when we recorded the album, on the third take, I added this fill. And that was it. And we, everyone looked at me and went, what was that? And in those days, we didn't have Pro Tools. We didn't mess with computers. We, you know, we cut the record and that's what you hear is what you get. And we tracked those User Illusions records live. And, you know, obviously Slash would overdub his guitar and Axel would sing and all that stuff. But the live track that went down was what you, you heard from a band. And then on the day when I went to play the Ritz, I just, I don't know. I just, I went into it, you know? <laughs> so I'm surprised to hear that. Cause I don't remember it going down like that, but, but it was early days though. It was early days of that band playing live with that particular lineup. So I was working things out on my own as well. And the, the albums weren't even out yet. They, they were, I mean, you, people were coming to the Ritz in New York city and you treated them to, uh, the bulk of, uh, both use your illusion albums and they, they'd never been heard. And I'm, I'm guessing, uh, based on like what you said, how, how little Axel like to, uh, prepare that was, uh, the first time everybody was hearing them, you know, including, including you guys. Yeah, well, you know, we never really played them in front of an audience, but what had happened was we hadn't finished some of the songs on the record and, and they'd already booked the tour. And uh, we're like, <laughs> let's go. 
And then we treated it more like, what if you saw GNR in the early days when they were playing at the Troubadour and they were throwing down Appetite for Destruction? Yeah. And you're like, what the hell is this? And the reason that first record is so great is they were a live band. They were playing the club circuit for a few years before they made that record. And all they had to do was walk in the studio and someone mic them up to capture that sound. And Mike Clink captured the essence of what is probably one of the greatest rock and roll albums to this day, right? Because the band was that band. And Use Your Illusions was different. We had to record it and then go play it. Now, I feel like we played it better as we got out on the road. And like, I'd love to go back and record the album after we played it live, but we didn't have the opportunity to do that, you know? Yeah. And if you hear a crazy snoring sound, that's my French bulldog. She's 12 years old. I don't know if you can hear that. Is that, uh, is that, is that Bowie? Bowie. <laughs> Bowie's back there just snoring away right now. Bowie, thank you. I, I was Bowie. reading, uh, I, fin- I finished the book last night and I, I saw Bowie uh, in the acknowledgments. Yeah. He's uh, famous on Instagram too. <laughs> oh man, I had rock star Frenchies on Instagram, right? And they asked, like a, like an idiot, they asked me for the age, right? And I put Bowie's birthday in, and they got the site got blocked. I'm like, wait a minute! <laughs> I I was like, complete oh. blonde <laughs> moment. Like I'm like, my dog's in rage. <laughs> I can't get it back. I'm like, what happened? Hey, but, hey, yeah. yeah. No, I was gonna say, but part of um, you know, the thing with Axel, and you know, I've known a lot of the guys over the years, and still do play with them, and and rehe- he definitely doesn't. Uh, he's not big on coming and rehearsing with the band a lot. Do Do you think for you, like, was there something about that? Even though you guys probably didn't like it at the time, but that maybe also kept you guys a little bit on edge. Like you really had to be like hyper kind of prepared when he walked into the room, because everyone says it, even though he never showed up when he got there, he delivered. So you guys always had to be on point, right? Well, one of the most famous things that ever happened, and I think it's in the book. Um, I might've edited it a little bit, but uh, we had a big gig at Freddie Mercury tribute. Mm-hmm. You know, we were, we were there. We opened the show, Wembley Stadium. It was us, Metallica, Def Leppard, and Extreme. And uh, and we were opening. And then Axel and Slash went out and played with Queen. You know, that Slash did Tire Mother Down. And then Axel went out and did Bohemian Rhapsody with Elton. And it was classic because Axel didn't show up for rehearsal. And everyone was like, where is he? And Elton's there, right? And people were like, oh, man, is he coming? And we're like, we're all like, no. (laughs) And and then he goes out on stage that night. You can go back and watch it on YouTube. He comes out in a black kilt. And, of course, Elton starts the song, and then they go into the Mamma Mia, Mamma Mia. And that's all on tape, and it always was on tape. Mm -hmm. Queen always dropped the lights, and they would go into that thing, and then boom, an explosion, and out runs Axel. And he just kills it. And everyone's waiting for him to like backstage, like where there's Robert Plant and like Ian Hunter and all these greats, right? Bowie was, uh, was there, all these people. And they're all watching the big screen and 
everyone looked at each other like, holy shit. (laughs) And he just nailed it. And same thing happened when we did the pay-per-view special in Paris. You know, there was Steven Tyler, Jeff Beck. Everyone's at rehearsal. No, Axel. And Steven's like, where is he? You know, I was like, he's not coming. And then on the day when we went up, we played Mama Ken, which was a cover that GNR did, of Mm -hmm. of course, Aerosmith. Those two dudes were up there. You can watch that on YouTube, I guess. Axel killed it. So you just kind of (laughs) like, he he prepared himself to just get out there and do what he did, you know? And, And we did the same thing at Rock and Rio, my first show. My first show at Rock and Rio. Here I am in front of 140,000 people. I barely had five minutes with Axel before I got on stage. And and he came out. And I remember we opened with Pretty Tied Up, which was like a deep cut off Future Illusions. <laughs> and as soon as we kicked into it, the entire place was just going off. I mean, and he came out. I think he was wearing a white leather jacket or something. And, and it was just on, game on, you know what I mean? It was very exciting and and so it was great, great times. Yeah, he was he was definitely one of the all time great frontmen. But I, I gotta imagine like it's gotta be super frustrating. Like I would think part like of course you want him like you want your band to kick ass and sound amazing. So of course you want him to to perform great. But then I would think if it was me, part of me would be like I kind of hope he fucking eats it a little bit tonight. So then maybe, <laughs> then maybe he'll show up and rehearse, you know, yeah, but it's, it's, I don't know. I, I mean, in back, looking back in retrospect, you know, yeah, sure. There was stuff that, you know, you know, was feelings that were going on at the time. And, but it, looking back in retrospect, I wouldn't, I wouldn't see the band any other way. Um, at that particular time in, in rock and roll. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the feeling of the train could go off the tracks at any moment. Yeah, I was there, but that's what made it dangerous and right and exciting. And you never knew what the fuck you were going to get. And, and even we, us going on stage brought another energy from us because there was this sort of, we didn't know what was going to happen tonight, you know? Yeah. And that was true. If three days went by that were, fairly calm. I'd go, fuck, tonight's the night. See all the shit's going to fly. <laughs> and, and that was the feeling that went on backstage and alcohol consumption became a, another level. And whatever we could do to get up on stage to throw down the best rock show and that, you know, Slash, and, Slash was really sort of a rock with the band. He was, even though he was fucking her, you know, <laughs> he was the guy that kind of would be, he's always had a really calm demeanor. Slash has been the guy you look at. He's just always been there. Like, just maybe in, inside, he was not feeling that way. But <laughs> you can look at him and go, okay, man. And he would be, come on, let's do this. Um, the same rang true when we played the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, we weren't going to get up there at first. And Slash goes, come on, we're going to play. And then, you know, that was that. And... So we kind of always looked at him like that guy was a bit of a band leader. And then there was our singer, you know, and our singer was this guy that came up and just fucking, you could watch an entire stadium. It would look like a ping pong game when he'd run around on stage. All the fucking eyes would go like, you know, they would occasionally look back at us, 
But, <laughs> but as a front man, that's the guy you want. When you're looking for a front guy, he's, you know, the epitome of a front man, yeah. you know, in the likes of Freddie Mercury and all the greats and Mick Jagger and, you know, he, he captivates the audience and he knows how to work a stage. And the band, when we got to the stadium level, everyone understood that this is a bigger fucking venue. And what are we going to do to make it as big as possible? And as for my drumming, it was the same thing. Everything was fucking animated, you know, like, whoa, you know, it's like fucking, you know, come on, you know. And they, they, the antics that you had to put on in that big of a, an environment were were pretty epic, you know. So drum solos and, you know, fucking explosions, you know. So it was over the top. The machine was huge. You know, and I look back in great pride that I lived to tell the tale because I don't think it's been done like that ever since. They do it differently now. There's things called Live Nation and AEG and shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got to remember in the old days, we'd blow through town. And there was some guy, a promoter that saved all his fucking money to get Guns N' Roses. And he's fucking handing us the check going, Fuck. <laughs> I hope you guys fucking play tonight, you know? Yeah. And there was Jam Productions in the Midwest. And you remember those guys? He had like five territories, Chicago. And we'd come blowing through there, you know, fucking wreak havoc. Yeah. Um, and 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 there was more um like Don, I'm sure you remember, like having to camp out overnight to get concert tickets and, and waiting in line at record stores that had ticketrons. Yeah. And, um, that's all, you know, that's all gone away. And it's, uh, but that was when like the real fans got in. It was like, I wish it would go back to that way. Uh, because it I'm was, glad I grew up in that era. Like yeah. when I grew up in the seventies, man, I mean, there was no greater era of rock and roll. In my opinion, I just played with Paul Rogers and Alice Cooper the other night again. And I'm, I still look at those guys. I'm like, these are fucking my heroes, man. I mean, I grew up with Alice Cooper. You know, I'm in a band with Billy Gibbons. I grew up with fucking ZZ Top. Yeah. Those guys, I sit with them in utter respect. I look at them. Billy's like my fucking guru. I mean, I made a record with him last year, and it's like, I could fucking die and go to heaven. Oh, was that was that his, uh, his latest solo record? Yeah, Hardware. Oh, that's a great fucking album. I produced that too and played drums on it and co-wrote all the music and we had the fucking best time. And my thing was like, fuck man, you know, I'm getting a little, I'm going to be 62 on Saturday. So my goal now is to just have fun, play music like when I was a fucking kid, man. I don't give a fuck. It's like, I don't want to be stuck in some machine with some jackass telling me what to do. I'm like, I'm just going to fucking play rock and roll. Yeah. And put out songs and play with my friends. Um, Cause I've, you know, I've done all that. Sure. Someone calls and makes me the right offer. I'll be like, I'm in, even if I need to be tortured slightly, I'll be like, <laughs> the number is like a different number for torture. It's like, it's like, this is going to suck. I don't really want to do it. Here's the number. 
And then they go, yeah. And then you're like, okay, I signed up. All right. <laughs> well, that, no, no better example of that was when you toured with Motorhead, man. Because uh, I remember we did a thing with you on that metal show out in the street after your second show yeah. with Motorhead at the Hammerstein Ballroom. And Ken, I, you, Matt showed us his hands. I, my dad worked 40 years climbing telephone poles, working on electrical wires in the middle of winter. My dad's hands never looked like Matt's did. They were <laughs> completely shredded yeah. to the bone. No I fucked up. I should have taped up, but I didn't. By the sixth show, I was like, holy shit. Like, Lemmy called me. I would have played for five bucks. I didn't give a shit. When when Lemmy texted me, uh, we'd been playing together out in L.A. quite a bit. I had a band with Dave Navarro called Camp Freddy. Yeah. And, and I would get Lemmy to come play with us, man. And we would do, like, God Save the Queen. And, you know, he loved Eddie Cochran, so we would play, like, something else by Eddie Cochran and, and whatever random. Right. So this one time I remember I get, I get Billy from green day to come and he wants to sing God save the queen. And I'd been calling Lemmy to come. We played at the Avalon theater and a bunch of great people came that night. Um, Billy Idol, all these people. And I get Lemmy on the answer machine. I'm like, Hey, can you come down and do God Save the Queen? Never calls me back. Billy from Green Day shows up. He's on stage getting ready to play. And I look over in the wings and there's Lemmy. And he showed up. And I'm like, I go over to Billy and I go, Billy, Lemmy just showed up and I already gave him God Save the Queen. And he goes, oh, shit, bummer. I go, what else you got? I go, uh, how about uh, Search and Destroy by, uh, by Iggy Pop? You know it? <laughs> he's like, He's like, I don't know the lyrics. So I fucking call Iggy because I, I I <laughs> in those days, I didn't have like the smarts to like Google like lyrics for search and destroy. So I call Lemmy, I mean, uh, Iggy, and he calls me back and he goes, uh, I'm a street walking cheetah with a Melville and napalm <laughs> on my answering machine. I was like, holy shit. So. I go, Billy from Green Day, I go, check us out. Here's the lyrics. It's Iggy reciting them. <laughs> and go use my phone. Um, so it was really funny. And then, so fast forward, I'm up at my house by my pool. I've told the story. My, my wife, I'm massaging her with some lotion by the sun. And I get this text. Lemmy says, Matt, we want you to come play with Motorhead. And I think I wrote something crazy like, why me? Yeah. <laughs> and, he goes, and he writes back because Dave Grohl's not available. <laughs> and I wrote, who's he with? The Beatle? Paul McCartney or something? Is he with Paul McCartney? Yeah. I go, can't drop the Beatle for the motorhead? <laughs> so Lemmy goes, I'm sending a DVD to your house at the Wacken Festival. Learn it. We'll meet you in Washington, D.C. So... <laughs> No rehearsal. I'm like, wait a minute. No rehearsal? No. And so I fly to 930 Club uh, in Washington, D.C. I meet Lemmy and Phil Campbell. We sound check. And I'm like, I've already started growing my hair and not bathing. I've got a beard going. I'm fucking wearing a black leather jacket. And I'm fucking like, I better look the part or they might kill me. You know, so <laughs> I... Uh, 
I bring a black drum set, a fucking field motorhead, you know? And I remember the first night I was fucking so nervous because motorhead was either or you know, so it could get confusing. I knew the song. <laughs> it was like a lot of shit going on rhythmically. So the first night I did the show, I think we, we did really well. But then when I got to the Roseland Ballroom and saw you guys, it was Roseland, I think, right? Roseland, yeah, you're right. Uh, fuck, I, I was fucking, I felt great. I was on fire. The band was, it, it was a good show, right? Phenomenal. And it was interesting because when I joined Motorhead, I tried to mix it up between Filthy and what Mickey did. Mickey was a little bit more of a metal drummer than me. I'm more of a rock guy. And then Filthy had this kind of sloppy, cool thing, a little bit like Steven Adler. You know, he had a thing. So I tried to like equal in the middle somewhere. And I played it like that, just rock and roll. Because Lemmy never really prided himself on being a metal band. He didn't like that. Lemmy like, he's like, we're a motorhead and we play rock and roll. You know, yeah, that's what know. they always felt like to me. I they, It always just felt, I mean, you mentioned Eddie Cochran before, but... Motorhead just all to me I always felt like just sped up Eddie Cochran, like just sped mm -hmm. up 50s rock. Yeah, it came from uh Lemmy's love of of uh rockabilly, mm -hmm. yeah. And um, but yeah, that was to me that was the greatest experience in my life. I said, <laughs> I was, I always say this, but it was like the end of Field of Dreams where Sheila Joe Jackson walks into the cornfield, <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm like, okay. I can fucking retire now. I'm done. Wow. Lemmy presented me with this certificate, which I still have honorary member of motorhead. And oh, that's so when, cool. when, when Lemmy passed away, I mean, you know, this, that a lot of people got his ashes. So I have, I have part of Lemmy with me on every day. Oh, you got a bullet, huh? I got the, I got the urn. Oh, wow. Yes. Really close friends of his got urns like the hat the whole thing and then i have the bullet as well but i feel oh, really made that's feel really special for my wedding he bought me a waffle maker maker and i keep that it's, <laughs> it's a killer waffle maker and i call every time i make waffles i call them lemmy's waffles and i feel like i need to pour jack daniels in there but i don't because i haven't had a drink in 15 years <laughs> like when lemmy died and we went to the church up on Forest Lawn, you know, Dave Grohl spoke slash I got up. Um, there was shots of Jack Daniels at the front door. And I swear to God, I had like at that time, I had like 10 years sober. I go, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do it, but I wanted to. You know what I mean? Yeah. Out of respect, I always felt like calling like my fucking sober buddy and go, hey, can I have one free pass? Yeah. Like, like, just for Lemmy. And they're like, no, can't do it. I'm like, oh fuck. I think even AA, even AA would would allow a Lemmy Paul pass. Well, I got to tell you one more funny story about Lemmy, and we'll move on. Uh, so I take Lemmy, me and him go to see James Hetfield get the Map Award, right? Which is just like this thing they give silver musicians, right? So me and Lemmy walk in the front door. There's no booze. It's sober, right? And he's like, Matt, where's the bar? I go, I go, shit, Lemmy, it's just no booze here. He goes, 
Well, then we won't be staying long. (laughs) (laughs) We turned around, we left, we fucking went in for a minute and then ended up with a rainbow. Yeah. You know, Um, I I love what you were just saying about you would have done the tour for five bucks. Um, And you say you saying I should mention, by the way, the book is called uh, Double Talk and Jive. And uh, you you said that in the book that it was the most fun you've ever had on tour. And um, I love that, uh, like um, yesterday we interviewed uh, for for the Raven Drum Foundation. We had Rick Allen and Lauren Monroe on, but also they, they it was like yesterday was like the super friends of drummers. We had um Shannon Larkin and Alvin Taylor and Billy Amendola and Matt Starr. And they were all, they all still seemed so uh, like blown away that, that they were each other's peers. Like that all these people that, that they grew up listening to were, were now their friends. And like that feeling never gets old to them. And uh, that's what it sounded like all through your book. Yeah, I was involved in the 12 drummers, too. I did the big event. It was really cool. I love Rick. I've known Rick 30 years, right? So um, back to probably Freddie Mercury tribute, which is about 91. I'm probably about the first time I met Def Leppard. And Joe Elliott's performed with my band, Kings of Chaos. So I know all those guys. And But yeah, you know, I mean, to play music and have a career as long as I have, and, you know, obviously Rick and those guys, there's a point in your life where you just kind of get comfortable in it, you know, and you go, it's more of like a something about self-respect versus like, whatever, what does everybody else think of me kind of shit? Yeah. You know, when you grow up and when you live in Hollywood, there's some line they always say in Hollywood, you know, this a lot of you guys are East coasters. So you'd be like, fuck Hollywood. Right. But, but uh, they'll come someone will come up to you. Go, so what have you done lately? What are you doing lately? You're like, Really? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, there's this constant pressure about remaining fucking relevant or whatever the fuck they call that. You know, like, oh, sorry, I'm not relevant. Why? Because I'm not doing stuff to please you or what is that? You know, so it's a it's a weird dilemma living in Hollywood. And hence a lot of the reason I moved and got out of there after 40 years of living in Hollywood. At the end of my book, I go to the desert. And I feel like I'm completely rejuvenated here. Like, I feel like I'm out of that fray of sort of this very competitive entertainment community. There's always new people coming in and you're the old guy or whatever the fuck they want to say. I don't believe any of it because (laughs) I hang with older people than me and I like them much more than a lot of these kids, you know, they're like, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I find the kids, you know, they're still trying to find their way. Like I talked to a lot of younger, you know, singers that are coming up, their manager won't let them do anything outside the box because they want to make sure that they keep, keep their brand intact. So you get a little older and we all start, you know, interplaying and collaborating. It's like Billy's come, Billy uh, Gibbons is coming out next week. We're going to go to my studio and record a song and we might get somebody else on it. We don't know what we're doing. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And Billy Duffy from the Colts coming, Robert DeLeo. And it's more, it's a little bit more open and more free when you, when you've, when you've achieved what we've achieved in our careers, it's just like, 
Okay, whatever. The rest is gravy. You know what I mean? So it's cool. You're trying to you trying to create a little scene down there in uh, in Palm Springs. I mean, it sounds like you put down your roots there. You you build you built a studio and all that. Are you seeing guys walk, like you want? Just let me get out of Hollywood. Let's you know. Let's take a drive down to the desert and and record some music down there away from all the nonsense. Well, yeah. I mean, the ma- the desert's always had a magical essence to it. You know, going back to Graham Parsons and Keith Richards and Dylan and all these guys coming out to Joshua Tree. Graham Parsons being the most famous of the bunch he, who died up in Joshua Tree. You know, Fr- Flying Burrito Brothers were very influential on the Rolling Stones. Yeah, and, exile. You know, so there's this history in the desert. Now, bringing it to Palm Springs, obviously it's the Rat Pack and that era of Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and Sammy Davis and all those guys. But we had Bob Hope here, Jack Benny, you know, Liberace lived here, you know. So there's always that history of Palm Springs and that, and, and that. So I, I like to say that is a new rap pack kind of vibe coming, you know, last weekend we saved this old theater downtown. We raised $12 million where it's an old theater that we're going to tear down. And Alice Cooper came into town and Paul Rogers from bad companies just moved here. And I got to play with Paul. It was like, and Orianti came out and then Josh, Josh Homme, but from uh, Queens of the Stone Queens Age. Queens of the Stone Age, yeah. Local boy. He grew up right here. So there's more musicians coming. Josh Freeze is living out here. Chris Cheney from Jane's Addiction. Brian uh, Ray from Paul McCartney's band is my neighbor. Yeah. And I just built a 5,000-square-foot recording studio. So I called Billy Duffy and, I, and Robert, and I go, you guys, come out. I'll cook breakfast. You stay in my Airbnb <laughs> and we're going to go rock. And that's what we're going to do. And I'm just going to invite people. Perfect time to come to Palm Springs. The weather's perfect. I got an old 62 Galaxy convertible. I'll drive them around. And uh, it's awesome. You know, I love it. And uh, the energy's good. And I dig that. So, Matt, if I come down to Palm Springs, you get me a good deal on your Airbnb? Well, it's my house, so my oh. Airbnb. <laughs> but yeah, so take, words, book a so, hotel. Yeah, so no, so you you'll be segment, you'll be in a hotel. You do a segment where you and me go on the celebrity house tour. Okay, and I'll take you to all the coolest spots where all these, you know, obviously Elvis was out here and Marilyn Monroe, and I know all the spots. So I, that's my thing. I mean, I always tell my wife, I'm like, well if the career doesn't keep panning out, I could always give house tours in my, in my, <laughs> in my charge a hundred bucks a seat. Yeah. Get an old van. <laughs> yeah. Be like, Hey, but, um, I love it. I love history. I love all that stuff. So it's cool. Um, I, here's what I loved so much about your book. It, it really was just, uh, sex, drugs and rock and roll. And, um, there was no, uh, I, I know you mentioned you've been sober for 15 years, but there was no, when you read a lot of the rock bios, you feel like with the guys who have sobered up, they're kind of preaching to you by the end. And there was, there was none of that in your book. It was just like, yeah, here's, uh, I mean, listen, they, you should have called the book like maybe, um, and uh, then I did cocaine in this exotic locale. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it was just it was just sort of unapologetic, and you were like, you know, you, you didn't you didn't pass judgment if it was good or bad. You were just like, this is this is what happened, and uh, I'm not trying to teach anybody anything by it. This is just these are the stories. Yeah, I feel like you know you're not going to tell anybody what to do with their lives. Really, it never really works that way. Um, you know, trying to drag a guy off a bar stool or a girl, you know, they're at the bar having a drink. They're not going to go. So for me, it happened when it happened, yeah. you know, and I think that's from what I see from case studies, typically when people are ready, they're ready. And I'm having a party for my birthday at my house here on Saturday. I've got, I got a mermaid in the pool. I got dancers. I got two bars. I, I called Gilby Clark. I go, what are you drinking? Jameson whiskey, Don Jameson whiskey. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm feeding my friends alcohol and I don't give a shit because I know for me, I'm cool. I'm just like, that's it. That's the end of that era. Yeah. And that's obvious from the book. And I've always said to people, I think you have a thing in life called moderation. Well, what the hell does that mean? It's like, it's like you get a certain allotment of shit to do. You can do it all at once. Or you can spread it out and that's called moderation. But when it comes to my particular story, I always felt like I just, it was part of the time for me and being in that band, especially GNR, I always explained it as sort of being on like a pirate ship. It was like me, Duff and Slash, especially we're fucking three pirates fucking, you know, going to the nth level and the feeling was right, even though it included a lot of, you know, obviously it, it took a turn for the worse with me and, and my friends too. And some of us didn't make it, but at that particular era of, of rock and roll and everything that we were doing at the time, it just seemed apropos, it just seemed like I'm supposed to do this. And I grew up, I grew up with John Bonham and Keith Moon and Led Zeppelin and the Stones, even though I forgot that Keith and John both died of alcoholism. Yeah. That just, that never registered with me. The romance of what they did was more of the story in my mind. It was like fucking Keith Richards drove his Rolls Royce into a swimming pool. Fucking awesome. <laughs> I want to do that. Right. And the story was never there about how they died. It just didn't make sense. They're, I'm not going to die. They didn't. Did they really die? I don't know. Like, yes, they did. You know, and so when it came time to be in a band at that level, I don't think I would have done it any other way. And I used to make a joke. I used to say, I remember Sunday night in Poughkeepsie, New York. I think it's in the book. It was the one night he decided to say in, you know, Sunday night, Poughkeepsie, New York. <laughs> <laughs> Three-year tour. I'm like, fuck, I better sleep tonight. I don't know when to sleep again. And I fucking stayed in. I woke up the next morning. I see Dizzy Reed in the lobby of the hotel. And he's like, man, you wouldn't fucking believe what happened last night. And he went into this whole fucking scene. You know, of course, girls and all that fucking nonsense. And I'm just like, oh, shit. After that, I never missed another night. Ever. In your in your defense, I will not miss out. 
in your defense, Matt, how could you possibly have known something cool was going to happen in Poughkeepsie? <laughs> that there's <laughs> nothing going on in Poughkeepsie. Look, we found it, man. We found shit to do. Like if the fucking place was, you know, an hour away from Poughkeepsie, there was a van arranged. I remember when me and Slash and Duff and every we before we started the Easy Illusions tour, we went to Biloxi, Mississippi. And we rented out the fucking arena and we had it as pre-production in the middle of fucking nowhere. <laughs> and me and Slash and Duff are like, how far is it to New Orleans? <laughs> right? <laughs> like, get a car. And I remember we would fucking rehearse until like, I don't know, whatever, eight or nine o'clock at night. And we'd be like, fucking New Orleans is open 24 hours, right? And we would get a limo. And fucking drive to New Orleans, party all night, and then drive back. You know, it was like, and I remember, I don't think it's in the book, but one time it was like Christmas time. I think we, I can't remember what leg of the tour it was. There was a fucking gigantic Christmas tree in the lobby of the hotel. And we were so rotted. <laughs> Slash, Slash ran to the front door of the lobby and started climbing the Christmas tree. And... I, he got to the top and I saw the thing go. <laughs> I mean, a fucking like 15, 20 foot Christmas tree, you know, big. There goes and the voice of reason down with the tree. I don't think I put that in the book. I should have. No. It's funny. No. But yeah. And the, the, the cult, the cult threw down pretty well too, man. Um, I love the story in the book where you, where I guess one of the guys, and maybe it was Billy, told you, whatever you do, do not open the door to Ian Asbury after one in the morning. And yeah. you, you made that fatal flaw one night. I did. But, well, early on, you know, early on in the band. <laughs> and that didn't go well for your hotel room, did it? No. And we got evacuated. <laughs> I squirted him with a fire extinguisher, which I never realized fire extinguisher, what it had in it, but it was like white powder. And I remember he was getting ready to do something, you know, very disgusting on my floor. And I remember going, <laughs> I can't remember what I said in the book. He was going to basically take a dump on my hotel yeah. room. He already destroyed my room. And I ran down the hallway to get the fire extinguisher. And I came back in. I told him, you better fucking knock it off, man. I'm going to fucking. And I sprayed him right in the face with this shit. And. <laughs> It got in his eye, and I remember him going, ah. And then the fire alarm went off, and, you know, they set it off because this shit looked like smoke. It was like white powder. And it said, evacuate the hotel, evacuate, evacuate. <laughs> that was the Justice for All tour. We were opening for Metallica. Oh, wow. And I remember we were all, like, 4 o'clock in the morning, we are all in our bathrobes, and me and Ian – we were like that scene out of uh, uh, fucking uh, Dan Aykroyd and Jim, Jim, Jim Belushi. The Blue Brothers. And we're like, and we put our robes on and we fucking, uh, we, go to, we get in the line of procession of people acting like, hey, it wasn't us, you know? And we get down to the, and the buses are out there and shit. And Metallica was in our hotel. And I remember I see all those guys in my fucking head. 
And we, <laughs> we literally went in our tour bus and hid in the back lounge and started, we were continued drinking and, and, and then the fucking fire marshal showed up with a fucking suitcase and shit. And me and Ian paid a big fine and the fucking Metallica did not let us off easy with that. We got to the show the next day and their entire crew was dressed up as firemen. <laughs> they, they had like in those days the bands were like very like we fucked with each other a lot you know especially Metallica would fuck with us and you know they did a bunch of shit when we ended the tour in the old days you would end the tour and the, the headliner would come out and fuck with the opening band start taking the gear away and they had all dressed up as Ian. They put like Ian had gained a little weight, so they were wearing like pillows under their shirts and shit. <laughs> Just fucked up. Got one guy with a vacuum. You know, by the end of the song, your whole drum kit, you don't have like a snare drum left. You'd be like, <laughs> you know, you drop stink bombs on us. And that was the famous, that's the goldfish story where they dropped the goldfish on us. And that's a long-winded story, but you have to read the book. Yes. Uh, it ends <laughs> with um, a goldfish burial in Central Park. Um, yeah. My favorite story in the book was uh, you bumping into Phil Spector. Yeah. That was that was a crazy night. It went on for a while. <laughs> so, Phil, so I was producing this artist named Poe. Um who I had a hit with back in the kind of this is uh this is between the usual illusions tour and when when me, me and Slash and Duff finally left GNR, there was sort of that that period in there where we were rehearsing, you know, for this album that we never made. About four or five years of that was going on. So yeah. I started producing other bands. I produced Candlebox and produced uh Cypress Hill, um, Send Dog and I thought, oh shit, man, I better gotta look for another vehicle, you know, that can't go join a band. So why don't I do some producing? So I had this hit with this song called Angry Johnny. So I was officially a producer. I had a manager, <laughs> producer. So I'm in Oceanway Studios producing Poe. And I finished the session and it's like 12 o'clock at night. We're leaving, you know. And I run into Cato Kalin, who I'd met at the gym. I'm on the treadmill, like, dude, you're the fucking dude from TV. <laughs> yeah, this was like during the OJ trial, right? Yeah. So he's like, oh, I'm Cato. And he was a nice enough guy. So he's coming down the hallway. I'm like, I'm like, Cato, what are you doing here? He's like, I'm here with Phil Spector, Ike Turner, and uh, all these other crazy fuckers. Uh, Rodney Bigenheimer. Brian, Brian Wilson. Brian Wilson. So, just come meet Phil. I'm like, okay. Door opens. Famous drummer Jim Keltner's there. It was Jim says, Oh, hey, Matt. Go, what are you guys doing? He's like, We got the wrecking crew in here with Phil Spector, the original band. All the guys they played on all that shit. All the Phil Spector hits, River Deep Mountain High. And. So I, Phil comes up, walks up to me. He's got his fucking hair done. He's got suit on. So I understand you're the Guns N' Roses drummer. I'm like, well, yeah. 
because I'd like you to play on this, this song of Celine Dion's. Well, sure, I could come back. I mean, it's 12 o'clock midnight. He goes, no, now. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm, I don't have any drums. And he says, how does $5,000 sound? You'll be out of here in an hour. I go, hold on, I'll be right back. <laughs> 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 I should have asked for more, but I didn't. I just five grand. I'm like, I'll be out of here. Uh, how, what do you need? Oh, a couple drum fills. I'm like, I call my drum tech. He comes down with the stuff. Sets up. I'm in there 16 hours with Phil Spector. One <laughs> <laughs> one drum fill. Went on for fucking ever. It's a long story. You got to read the book. Uh, oh my God. Anyway, in the middle of the session, I tell Phil, I go, Phil, I'm kind of hungry. You hungry? He's like, well, yeah, I could eat something. I said, have you ever had Roscoe's chicken and waffles? <laughs> Which was right across the street on Sunset Boulevard. Famous. Soul food vibe. So they send out to get Roscoe's chicken and waffles. And Phil and like, at this time, Ike Turner left. Brian Wilson split. That was all trippy. Uh, Marvin Mitchelson was there, the famous attorney who won the case Marvin versus Marvin, which is Lee Marvin and his wife. I don't know if you remember this. You can look it up. Famous attorney. And I hear them talking about the OJ trial and that Phil Spector used to be a court stenographer. He worked as a, he would go in, you know, the guy mm -hmm. when they're doing all the, yeah. doing the transcript. I'm like, wow. So he was fascinated with this OJ trial. And that's why Cato was there. He was like picking his brain and I'm like, whoa, this is weird. Right. So that was happening. That was like a sidebar thing that was going on. And then I'm here, I am eating chicken and waffles. And I look across the table and Phil Spector is going, uh, 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 oh, oh, he's choking. <laughs> he's got a piece of chicken in his throat. And I yelled my drum tech, Mike Fasano, with a lot of people know in the music business as the sack. He works for Green Day and a bunch of big bands. I go, Heimlich, Renuva. <laughs> <laughs> Mike goes over and picks up Phil Spector, who's got, you know, his fucking wig on and his fucking high heels. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Out comes the chicken. And basically saved Phil Spector's life. <laughs> no wonder he made you do 16 hours. So I'm going to get that bastard back for almost killing me. Yeah. And then we finally finished the track and he's happy. Fuck. It was brutal. And the sun's up. It's like six, eight. I wasn't even fucking partying then. I wasn't doing blow or anything. I took a break in the middle. I had a couple of sober moments. Um, Phil goes, let's go to a bar. I'm like, Oh shit. Fuck it. Phil. It's like six o'clock the next day. And I'm still up. And, he says, let's get some girls. And <laughs> I'm driving. Bill Spector's got a 1965 silver cloud Rolls Royce. And I'm in this fucking Rolls Royce with Bill Spector and his driver wearing gloves and a hat. And I take him to El Compadre. Across my <laughs> and I asked, the, I knew everybody there because GNR would go there all the time. We would be sitting there and. The guy knew me. He goes, let's get the back booth. So 
And I called these girls to come. I, I said, come down and meet. Who's that? Phil Spector. Who? I don't know Phil Spector. I go, just come down. Going to buy all the drinks. It'll be great. Come on. So these girls are like sitting there going, who is this guy? Finally, it gets to the point where everyone's kind of getting like a little bit weirded out. So I go, I go to the girls, go to the bathroom and powder your nose. So the girls get up and then I go, Phil, I got to go take a pee. And we, we, <laughs> we vanish out the back door. I I'd had enough. Yeah. Don, how many times has that happened? Like you meet like a big name comic that you always admired and you're like, holy shit, I can't believe I'm like hanging out and, and drinking with this dude or part. And then, and then a few hours later, you're like, I, I got to get rid of this fucking guy. <laughs> Oh man, I should not have met this guy. I always say, be careful of meeting yeah. your heroes. You yeah. know what I mean? I'm yeah, no, it's funny because I, you know, I, you know, Dice is my comedy hero, and I did, you know, 10 years on the road with him. So, you know, and it's now he's, you know, one of my closest friends, which is still nuts. I could still separate that stuff, but he he'll do that to people because you know, people still love Dice and they'll, they'll always come up to me after the show is, oh, we want to meet Dice, we want to meet Dice. And I'll go back, I'll go, yeah, Dice, this guy, you know, he, you know, he saw you at 27 different play arenas in the 90s, this, that, and the other thing. And Dice will go, all right, bring him back. And Dice will play nice for like the first 10 minutes. And then he will drive that person so nuts. <laughs> they, you could tell they cannot wait to get out of the room. Like he'll take, he'll make them take like a hundred selfies with them. Go, All right, now let's make a funny face. And then, and the guy go, I got to get going. Dice. No, no. Just stay <laughs> yeah. And then you just see people like just tearing out of there, like Fred Flintstone <laughs> with their, with their legs spinning because they can't handle meat and dice anymore. So I love that. He yeah. Did. So I ran into him on an airplane. Uh, recently, and he, he goes, it. he goes. You know, I'm the reason Guns N' Roses got back together. You know, because <laughs> <laughs> he used to hang around with us. You know, when we played the Rose Bowl, we had a whole thing backstage, and he would do a show, and we had a big band. And I go, well, Dice, you forgot to call me, didn't you? <laughs> and he goes, no, 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 I got Axel and Slash to talk again. It's me. And I'm like, yeah. he's, he claims he's the guy. So we can run with that. I think it's cool. Um, I, I, the, the hardest part for me about reading your book was, um, you mentioned specifically how amazing the run at Madison square garden during that tour was. And, uh, I had tickets. I was 16 years old in 1992 and um, uh, my friend Danny Meckleberg scored tickets and was going to take me. And you guys were the biggest band on the planet, my favorite fucking rock band. And I, I couldn't wait. And my older brother was dying to go and didn't get tickets. And I think in like a bit of like a, in, in a little bit of like a fit of jealousy, he told my mom that you guys were a dangerous band and that people had been rioting and who knows when Axel would come out and who knows when or if I'd even make it home. And like my, my mom didn't know the first thing about you guys. And next yeah. thing I knew, she was like, you're not going to that concert. And my ticket got taken away. Oh, yeah. 
And uh, so I know he's listening. So I just want to say, fuck you, Jordan. Uh, feel resentment there. <laughs> I think, yeah. I think what he's saying is you owe him a free show, Matt. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, you could come see the Kings of Chaos. I would love. I'd love to. Um. Yeah. You know, I had a similar experience when I was a kid. I was I had tickets to the Who when Keith was still alive, mm-hmm. and I got in trouble at school or something, and my mom took my tickets away, and I never got to see the Who with Keith. Oh. And I still hold that like resentment. I'm like, fuck, mom. <laughs> you don't understand. I mean, fuck. I think that's um that's one of the coolest stories in rock, though. How Keith Keith and Ringo were friends, and Keith teaches Ringo's son Zach how to play the drums because yeah. Ringo knew that he wouldn't listen to his dad. Like you, like your dad can't give you drum lessons, so he, Keith Moon teach him how to play, and now. Fast forward. Well, we heard about his birthday when when Keith pulled up with a half semi. So Ringo standing out there with his kid, and Keith says he's coming over. He's got a surprise. It's like Zach's like twelve or something, like eleven or twelve, thirteen, whatever his age was. <laughs> fucking Keith Moon pulls up in front of the house in a half semi, double bass drum set, fucking like twelve tom toms, <laughs> a gong, fucking timpani, fucking you know. And Ringo just went like, boom, 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 boom. how am I going to beat that? <laughs> <laughs> and ever since then, I'm pretty good friends with Zach. Yeah. He's, he's a good buddy of mine. He's a cool dude. And he said that was it for him. He Keith was his idol. And if you look at, if you watch Zach play, he is the epitome of. He plays steady, like, yeah. The steady guy. And he studied Keith. And he's been in the Who for 20 something years. So, yeah, I think that's one of the coolest stories in in rock. Um, yeah. uh, I know I got to let you out of here in a minute or two, but um, I wanted to ask. We didn't even get to. Uh, we didn't even get to Velvet Revolver, but um, I fucking love that band too. What? Why do you think? I always thought Wyland was such a great frontman, and I don't think. I don't think like I think in the I think at the time people realized it, but I think that's sort of faded. I don't think he gets the respect that he deserves now. No. He was one of the greats, in my opinion. In my opinion, he was right up there with with the greats, in my opinion. And he was a true artist, you know, he was he was quirky as fuck, but I've said this before. I said you don't get a great singer that's the fucking nice guy and the normal guy. And, perfect and all squeaky clean and shit. That just isn't, <laughs> that doesn't make for a great front man. I'm sorry. It's like, you're going to have to deal with a very interesting character to get that guy that you want to see on stage, you know, drummers too. I mean, I know I said, I meet a drummer. I go, Hey, you drink, you a drinker? No, I never had a drink. I go, you're probably a shitty drummer then. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, drummers have a certain background, you know, the g- great rock drummers got, shit that he's growing up with or however he ended up fucking being a guy beats on shit. Right. Singers. They come from turmoil, pain, you know, upbringings fucked up. You know, if you kind of look at the history of these guys and you go, Whoa, (laughs) the artistry is exceptional because there's a bunch of shit they can draw from to be able to make them the artist. And Scott was that guy. Like, 
I don't know why it isn't represented like it should be in rock and roll, but in my opinion, Velvet Revolver was my band. And I felt like for guys that were getting older, we were firing like a young rock and roll band. We were fucking, the first album especially, we were fired up. We came out fucking, you know, we all got in really good shape and we were just, we were ready, you know, and, and it, and it, what came off the record and then came off the live shows made for a great band. And then of course we imploded, but yeah, well, all <laughs> most yeah, great bands God. do. I think about that now when I'm looking for singers, I'm always like, fuck, where are they? But now that band, now that band is, is on the new single. So it's basically right. Velvet revolver with you. Is it you? You're singing that track, right, Matt? That's me. Yeah. Yeah. With uh, yeah. if you like, with your permission, we'll we'll tack the new single on to the end of this episode, so so people could hear it. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I sang on it as a joke and played it for the band, thinking I said, "Hey, check out this guy," and they were like, <laughs> "He's pretty good. Who is that?" And then I let it go for a little while, and I finally was like, "Because we were looking for a singer after Scott forever." And then when I when I called the guys to put it out, they were all very cool. They we all still like the song and there's a lot of music out there living in digital fucking uh, hard drives. Yeah. <laughs> I said, this song needs to see the light of day. It needs to be unleashed. And I put it out and I made that crazy video. Somebody said it looked like what Rob zombie, but I never fucking looked at that video until somebody said that. Oh yeah. I, I, I that's what I, that's what I thought when I watched it seemed like a, like a, like a, not a, like a Rob zombie movie. Yeah, well, I, I ended up kind of basing it on a movie called Vanishing Point, which was mm-hmm. uh, a, a Barry Newman. From the 70s. Yeah. That's how it started. And then I got Billy Gibbons to play the DJ that was played by Cleavon Little. And then I told the director, Brian Cox, I said, let's make do kind of a natural born killers kind of vignette. Almost looks like retro phony. He's like, so we did everything with projectors, no green screen. So like super cheap. You know, borrowed the car, borrowed the motorcycle, yeah. borrowed my wife. <laughs> I love the car. The bad guy's my trainer, the guy I work out with. I go, dude, you look kind of like Danny Trejo, but you'll work. <laughs> well, check out the uh, check out the video, uh, Judgment Day on YouTube. We'll we'll put the we'll put the single at the end of this. Um, uh, Matt, I could talk to you all day, but I'm I'm getting the sign that you have to go. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. I hope you had fun. Uh, go to 12drummersdrumming.org and you could bid you can bid on uh, on on Matt's um, you did artwork on a symbol, right? No, on a drum head. I on a drum head, I'm sorry. Yeah. I draw the squiggly guy and then I got some old velvet revolver sticks. That's so, all my name and velvet revolver on there. Go to 12drummersdrumming.org, buy and read Double Talking Jive. It was a fantastic book. Matt, thank you so much for coming on. Don, thanks for for filling in. uh, Good to see you, Don. That was a surprise. We'll see you next week.